Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We are back a week early with another bonus episode commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters. If you're interested in commissioning a bonus episode of your own to get us to talk about your favorite weird fiction story or your favorite Star Trek episode or anything else you can think up, go check out our website for information about how to do that, though the best way is to become a Patreon supporter. I'm very excited about what we are doing today, but Brandon, I'm going to let you be the bearer of our awesome news here. (laughs) Well, thank you, Glenn. One of our supporters asked us to talk about weird fiction in comics. I'm not a comic expert, so we've asked a special guest to join us this episode to talk with Glenn more about comics. I've got a few comics I'm thinking of in this topic, but I think between the three of us, uh, we're going to put together some great conversation about weird fiction and comics. Right. There was no way we would do an episode about comics without summoning the full strength of the network's Neil Gaiman podcast, Hanging Out with the Dream King, where we are currently discussing the very first volume of The Sandman right now. And so, yeah, as Brandon has said, we are joined today by my co-host, Brent Helt. Brent, welcome to Elder Sign. And I'm excited to be on Elder Sign because I've been really enjoying listening to the episodes that Glenn and Brandon have been doing. Uh, And I'm excited that finally we can talk about weird fiction and comics. And the the best place to start with that, I think, is Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. (laughs) I cannot wait to hear more about Jimmy Olsen, who seems like the least weird thing that you could pick out of comic books. So let me give a a little roadmap here to to listeners. We've identified a handful of weird fiction subgenres or really just weird fiction elements or categories. And we're just going to go through them. And each of us or a few of us will offer a, a favorite title or one that we think is maybe best representative of that element of weird fiction. And we're just going to have a chat about these. It's not going to be exhaustive. We're going to leave out probably someone's favorite comic book. But hey, that's what the forum is for. And we would love to hear about anything we leave off. But before we get into that, we're going to do a little comics history. And, and, and Brent really is the network's resident comics historian. So Brent is going to get us started by talking about horror comics in the, the first few decades after the Second World War. So take it away, Brent. And following the Second World War, um, there was an explosion of comics. There were uh, over 600 titles coming out in any given month. Um, initially, there was not a lot of attention that parents were necessarily paying to what their children were reading. And that changed in the mid-50s. But up until that point, there was, there was a lot of different options. You had your soap opera, your romance comics. You had uh, horror comics. You had your spandex uh, superhero uh, tights and capes. Uh, comics. You had your detective noir comics. And it's really the noir comics and the horror comics that um, as people were kind of pushing the envelope and seeing what they could do and making the most of the genre, that eventually some parents groups started to get very concerned in the mid-50s. So there was a lot of comics anthologies that uh, EC Comics had put out, uh, Tales from the Crypt, uh, which many people may recall from being a television show in the 80s and 90s, but uh, started as a comic book. And But for our purposes on the Hanging Out the Dream King, we always talk about House of Mystery, which came from DC Comics. Uh, DC, who brings us Superman and Batman and all the superheroes that you wish would get better film treatments than they do, essentially. <laughs> right. But the House of Mystery uh, initially really delved into American horror uh, and noir stories in the mid-50s. But then, with the greater attention of parents' groups... And for if you're interested in knowing more about this, um, I would uh, heartily recommend checking out a book called The Ten Cent Plague by uh, David Haju, the great comic book scare and how it changed America. And it, that book is all about the rise of the Comics Code Authority. And the Comics Code Authority was this thing that publishers decided to kind of opt into. It was similar to the MPA rating system that's used for films now. Um, and there are a lot of legitimate criticisms about it, just as there are with the MPA. Um, and so with the Comics Code Authority taking over and a lot of scare and pressure from parental groups, horror and noir kind of faded back a little bit. And then we saw more of a trend towards superheroes and we saw more of a trend towards kind of science fiction concerns and less about worrying about what's under your bed and the fact that it's a human maybe with an axe or it's some ununderstandable thing from another dimension. By the time we got around to the late 70s and early 80s, things turned 
started to twist a little bit. And finally, uh, in the early 80s, we got the Swamp Thing comic, uh, which had hit a resurgence in the late 70s. And uh, Alan Moore took over writing duties for it. And uh, one of his issues, actually, for the first time, did not actually carry the Comics Code Authority um, restrictions. And that was a really big deal. And after that point, plus wonderful job that Alan Moore does, everyone was kind of off to the races in terms of pushing more into the horror genre. That's given us some really great examples from the 80s into the 90s and the early 2000s or aughts, as some people say, and then even today. And I think we're going to have a really good discussion about a number of these instances in the last 30 years, 40 years that uh, have kind of sprung from this pushing back on Comics Code Authority. So I, I don't actually know all that much about these horror anthologies that you, you've brought up, Brent, other than what you have told me about as we've been doing episodes of Hanging Out with the Dream King, where mostly, of course, we've talked about Kane and Abel, their appearance in Sandman, and how they, they come from House of Mystery. What type of horror stories were we getting in those anthologies? Were they weird fiction horror stories? Were these like slasher horror stories? Was it a hodgepodge of horror? I mean, in the heyday in the early 50s, my sense, and I, I have not read all of them but from the ones i've seen it very much kind of was a hodgepodge there were a lot of options but you know slasher was on the rise as there was a lot of um kind of the normal terror of living in the environment you're living in but there was a lot of other experimentation going on and and people who were taking and adapting works from weird fiction authors from earlier in the century well, I really need to check out some of those horror anthologies. I was even just looking at some of them that are available. These are collected. They're available to, to get as trade paperbacks now. And I, I don't know, it would be fun for us to actually do some episodes on a specific issues of these. Maybe we'll do those on, on Patreon someday. But I'm really excited to get into the weird fiction revival of the, the mid-80s and the 1990s. For, for me, you know, when we were growing up in this time and we were experiencing this, in fact, Brent, you were the person who got me into Lovecraft after I had discovered Poe in my, my grandparents' house. Your grandparents should have returned his body, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write that short story as soon as we are off the air tonight, for sure. But part of why we were reading Lovecraft, not even part of why we were reading Lovecraft, the reason we were reading Lovecraft as teenagers in the 1990s was because of the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, which did a lot to revive the legacy of the sort of interwar weird fiction writers, uh, Lovecraft, Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, and, and, and others. But it's only really as an adult that I've come to appreciate that Swamp Thing actually was independently a part of that movement and, and that actually the weird fiction revival in comics probably doesn't actually owe as much to Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game, as it does to, to Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. So originally the character originated in the 19, early 1970s, but then kind of was put on hold after a limited run into the 1980s. And when it came back in 1982, we had the idea of a man who was subjected to chemical compounds he was working with, kind of a normal superhero sort of origin story, although in a swamp. It's a little bit more gritty, and um, there was a little bit of noir aspects and that the mob was involved. But ultimately then Alan Moore came in and, and kind of turned the tables on everything. He was given the uh, license from the editorial board at DC to, to do what he wanted to do. And so the first thing he did, and he took over an issue 20 of that run, uh, an issue called Loose Ends. He tried to wrap up a whole bunch of intricate plot details and ultimately ended with our protagonist, the Swamp Thing, on the last panel, shot seemingly dead, lying on the ground. And then it was the very next issue, issue 21, called Anatomy Lessons, where we begin to learn that Swamp Thing is not a man who is imbued with the power of plants. But under Alan Moore's run, we get this wonderful story where it's plants that think they're a man. And so the organs of Swamp Things are actually just useless plant matter that this creature that is actually composed of plants is trying to it has the memories of this man who did actually pass away years before and 
is then struggling with what it means. Um, and throughout the run, oftentimes the swamp thing that is not a man is the most humane character that we see encountered, um, among a number of other noir figures and American Gothic, um, overtones that we see laced into this. And he's dealing with evil corporations that are trying to pollute things. And there's a lot of ecological messages going on, but there's also, horrible arcane works in progress where people are trying to live forever and using vermin kind of as their their puppets and to do their willing and there's a lot of images of centipedes and snakes and spiders and as someone who doesn't care for bugs i I was very much affected by how gruesome this was to be seeing all of this imagery of um, bugs crawling in and out of and around people and just kind of constant flies as you're describing this, uh, you know, the the story of the Swamp Thing and some of the thematic elements, all, all I can think about is like the Linda Hamilton, Ron Perlman, Beauty and the Beast <laughs> show that came out that George R.R. R. Martin was a writer on. And I just, I have to imagine that there, that he was probably reading this comic and that was taking some of these major themes and t- bringing them to TV. I'm also reminded of the like the flash TV series that came out in like the late eighties or early nineties. That's also doing like similar stuff with the, the superhero and science testing and all these things going on. This feels super influential to me, especially in the early nineties attempt to like make TV more like comics in some way. And I think like with the flash, uh, Barry Allen was the, the second flash who was depicted in that show, which was, uh, which was a lot of fun. I remember watching it. And in that case, it was lightning hit a bunch of chemicals that he had at the police science laboratory and that cause. And it was this great instance of superheroes being created by chemicals being spilled on people all the time. You got to worry about that. And you have to worry about getting hit by radiation or being bit by something that has radiation. <laughs> right. Or being born a, a cat man, as Rod Perlman was <laughs> in Beauty and the Beast. Right. Or if you're just born a cat man. And there's actually an interesting storyline at one point. Uh, I mean, an ongoing motif of Swamp Thing is his relationship to Abby, his romantic partner who's a human. And it's them reconciling the fact that they are very much in love, but he's – literally in the Alan Moore run, not even like a man who's been, you know, disfigured and connected with plants. He's not really a man. And so there's even a bit later where she finds herself locked up because people in the local community in Louisiana discover that she's having this unnatural relationship with plants and how dare she, she interacts with their children. And so obviously there's a lot of things Alan Moore's commenting on here in the mid eighties um, that is not about whether you want to have a romantic relationship with your houseplant but uh he's doing all this through the lens of this the story in which again oftentimes the most sympathetic character is the swamp thing who thinks he is a man and then gradually discovers he isn't one of the things we talk about all the time on this show is the way that weird fiction or even speculative fiction more broadly airs the the concerns and the anxieties of the age in which it's written and of course also the particular concerns of its individual creator and in this case a swamp thing is really dealing with these concerns about uh, environmentalism and especially pollution and what trying to sort of chemically alter our environment, right? What might be the consequences of things like big agribusiness and over-medication and weed killers and pesticides and and, and so on. Uh, but also, I think a really big part of it, even right from the moment that Alan Moore takes, takes this over and, and revives it, is this concern with massive corporations and how their specific interests are a detriment to to the rest of us, right? And so in some ways, even Swamp Thing has this real element of, of, a, of a kind of cyberpunk mentality to it as well. Yeah, it very much does. And it also has this these themes of, you know, the more we look um, and the more we clear jungles and swamps and forests, then we're uprooting the habitat of where these monsters live. But maybe it's not the monsters that we really need to be fearing so much as the damage that we're doing by eliminating these environments. And the the theme of swamps or the the setting of swamp is is a huge bit 
of weird fiction. And specifically, Swamp Thing is in a swamp in Louisiana, which is the whole second act of Lovecraft's best-known story and, and real masterpiece, The Call of Cthulhu. And in the swamp, it, as Lovecraft imagines it, I mean, it's just like the, the darkest, most evil horrors you can imagine are happening in that swamp, both in terms of there being creatures that humans can't possibly imagine, but there are also humans who are worshiping those creatures. And Alan Moore flips that around and says, yeah, there is a monster in the swamp in Louisiana, but he's a good monster and he's actually the best human there is, or he's perhaps more human than most humans are. Yeah, he he's trying to embrace slash create a humanity, while many times who he's facing off against are humans who are actively trying to shed their humanity in the terrible things that they're doing to other humans, but even just their beloved family members in which they will use them as pawns to try to give themselves more power in an occult sense, as well as sometimes in a scientific testing sense. So there's a lot of fun stuff going on there. Yeah. And Alan Moore has recently returned to this Lovecraft and the weird fiction themes explicitly in, in what his most recent, I think, uh, comic run, which was a limited series called Providence, which is a melding of uh, Lovecraft and Providence, Rhode Island, and the real world and real weird fiction. Oh, Providence is fantastic. I, I read all of that as single issues as it was coming out. This envisions a character invented by Lovecraft uh, as if he's a real person and is going through the the world, the fictional New England that 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 Lovecraft imagines and is encountering the horrors that Lovecraft describes all of these mysteries as if they're they're real world events and it's a it's a masterful story I mean Alan Moore you know he's a pretty good writer in comics and in prose right people should be reading Alan Moore uh, we should probably move into into the 1990s now I, I know for me probably the most important thing that ever happened in comic books uh, in uh, you know my formative years uh, in the early 1990s was the creation of the vertigo imprint of DC, which was something that followed on the success of Swamp Thing and also the success of Sandman. The creation of Vertigo was this great moment in which DC said, we have a number of comics running and they're clearly for a mature audience who really want kind of weird takes on things, whether, you know, traditional weird fiction or broader, even more, you know, strange uh, takes on uh, magical realism or other things. So you had Swamp Thing that got pulled into the line. Hellblazer got pulled into the line. Um, of course, John Constantine, the, the star, um, the lead, we'll call him, um, of Hellblazer originated in a Swamp Thing comic that Alan Moore had written. He's introduced in a slightly different way than we end up seeing him down the line in his own story, where he's uh, a little less put together in his own comic than he is where he's just there to wise talk to Swamp Thing, but uh, an Alan Moore creation. So we had Hellblazer, uh, Sandman, and Swamp Thing, and then we also had Shade the Changing Man with just kind of the the art of the weird going on there in terms of what he was interfacing with. I can't remember if Doom Patrol was part of Vertigo or not, but that was another kind of, it was a superhero team, but a little bit more strange. They weren't, they weren't build as your normal kind of superhero team. And there was also Animal Man. That was one you were a big fan of, as I recall. Yeah, Animal Man was great. Um, one of the things that eventually uh, Swamp Thing encounters is that he is an Earth Elemental, and he taps into this kind of web or dimension that uh, lays over hours called the green. And it's basically all of the plants in the world are uh, interfaced with it. So in a, in a superhero power sense, he's able then to learn that he can grow a new body and transport himself anywhere around the world through the green, through this interconnected network. But it also means whenever something is out of whack ecologically anywhere in the world, then he is aware of it and it affects him. And so it ends up him trying to be this, again, the earth elemental who is trying to fight back against things. Uh, meanwhile, Animal Man took kind of a secondary or tertiary character in normal superhero uh, tales who can communicate with animals, but then he actually becomes very sympathetic towards the plight of animals. Um, and it becomes a very kind of pro uh, vegetarian or even vegan, but he's 
uh, able to tap into something called the red, which is just kind of, you know, the, the, this force that is all the living things, um, and communicate with those things and, uh, reconcile with that, that he's then also using that sometimes to fight, get back against animal testing and, and with Swamp Thing, as well as with Animal Man, I mean, and with Sandman, as we've seen when we've talked about Sandman some, you have traditional DC characters who pop up. Uh, there was a great bit in which, uh, in a DC Comics Presents, Superman encounters this fungus from a different, from Krypton. And it, the, the fungus invades him and it starts making him very sick and he's hallucinatory and he doesn't know what he's doing and he gets in a car and he doesn't know where to go so he just heads south and he ends up in the bayou and runs into swamp thing who figures out how to cure him by basically burning out of him um this diseased fungus that is from krypton so he ends up okay but that's like the first big crossover in which swamp thing is helping superman live um because in the shared continuity of the dc universe even <laughs> your occult things on the side occasionally you're dealing with and there's people with capes who are also there which is a little strange but also kind of fun for those of us who like to read a little bit more broadly in it and we've been encountering a lot of that in the the first volume of the sandman as well but there were titles in vertigo in fact i think most of the titles in vertigo aren't really associated or, or attached to the the DC Comics superhero universe. And, and probably my favorite of them, and I know it was one that you liked as well, Brent, was The Invisibles by Grant Morrison. Yeah, The Invisibles was a complete standalone, and that was a lot of fun where it was anarchists who were taking advantage of hallucinogenic drugs and other things to fight back against the forces of tyranny that would try to make everything kind of the same. It was they – they had a lot of characters – to them um all of those characters had a lot of personality and a lot of fun and one of the things that was really interesting about them is they embraced anarchy so much that uh after every big mission they would then draw lots as to what role they would have next time so we go through an arc in which king mob is in charge and we assume that he'll be the leader of the team for the next time but nope they draw lots and it ends up that raggedy ann is the one who's in charge next time and king mob is in charge of transportation so he has to make sure that they've got their plane tickets squared away and they got their automobiles set up the creation of the Vertigo imprint, I think, really like changed my life in those moments. But in the early 90s as well, there was another really significant moment in comics. And that was, and, and maybe it's the one that's actually more significant for us today that's had a sort of longer lasting and bigger impact. And that was the uh, creation of Image Comics as a creator-owned imprint. Yeah, and in the mid-90s, um, a bunch of creators, mainly artists, decided that they were tired of not having rights to their work. Um, they'd seen what had happened to a lot of people who – and the relatives of a lot of people who had passed away, who had created all these uh, major properties that had made a lot of money for uh, companies such as DC, owned by Warner Brothers and Marvel. And they decided they wanted to create their own material and, and publish it themselves. So they banded together um, to work out the economies of scale just so to then – get distributions squared away and they created kind of freestanding stuff and there was a lot of well-known comic artists uh also well-loathed comic artists in some cases but uh who created a bunch of things there were some writers amongst them mainly artists um and so initially the first runs were not great by many accounts in terms of writing but later they brought in some additional writers that really kind of helped work things um out and, and push things forward so uh warren ellis's run on uh, Stormwatch was uh, uh fantastically regarded by a lot of people where they tried to flip on its head some of the notions about uh, the justice league essentially but you also had spawn that todd mcfarland created although notably uh todd mcfarland then got in a protracted legal dispute with neil gaiman uh over the rights of one of the characters that neil created when he was a guest writer on the comic and uh neil asked him to pay the money that were due the royalties and todd mcfarland said no you can sue me and so neil gaiman did uh they have settled out of court and ultimately this was really an important move because it, it, it kind of opened comics back up i mean comics had been a very big medium uh prior to the 70s 80s and 90s but it felt like in the 1980s in particular that there was this kind of i don't know not monopoly but duopoly between dc and marvel but image really proved that that 
you could write comics outside of those two uh, superpowers and uh, and well and I guess also write comics that aren't about people with superpowers I guess to use the word in two different ways and that's been a really lasting uh, that's had a really lasting impact on on comics as a as a medium. No, I think that's helped a lot. Uh, but you know, Dark Horse um, and some other smaller presses kept on chugging away throughout the '80s and '90s, and so Image got a lot of big splash. Um, and Dark Horse sometimes had trouble getting attention for things that were not intellectual property rights they got for other things. So they're oftentimes most regarded in the '80s and '90s for their take on the Alien franchise and the Predator franchise and stuff. But uh, but there were some other things that they were able to do there that uh, were very interesting. Well, let's let's circle back around to digging in on some weird fiction topics. We've got a couple subgenres of weird fiction that we want to go through and just talk about some titles that uh, we think are important or good uh, that fall under that heading. And the first one that we're going to talk about, and I think it's the one that makes the most sense to talk about first, is cosmic horror, sometimes called Lovecraftian horror as well, as we talk about on the podcast all the time. Brandon, we're going to let you have a first crack at this one. What is the title that you have brought in tonight under the heading of cosmic horror? Yeah, the first thing that sprung to my mind when looking at some of these subgenres was a comic I got for Christmas a couple years ago called Fatal. It's uh, under the image imprint. It's written by Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips. It ran from 2012 to 2014. It's basically all the stuff that we just talked about combined. It is noir. It is uh, World War II coming home story. It is a story that goes from the 1950s to the 1990s and it extends a little beyond in each direction and it also turns a lot of genre staples on its head the main character of this is a femme fatale but the question is what makes her a femme fatale what makes her attractive to these damaged men and why does she have the power she has over them the answers are uh, sprinkled throughout the comics but this, these stories are also filled with dirty cops and mobsters and uh, cults worshiping ancient gods and special powers. And it's so much fun. It's so good. The art is incredible. The story is incredible. And the weird fiction stuff is balanced perfectly with the noir elements. And Ed Brubaker's done a great run on Daredevil as well. He's written some other crime uh, and noir comics, but this is him bringing, I think, everything together in what I find to be just like a gorgeous story full of everything that I love about the genres of noir and weird fiction as well, particularly the cosmic horror elements, which include all the ancient ones and the tentacled creatures, and <laughs> uh, you know, old gods being worshipped and, and the odd practice of cults and acolytes and uh, ritual murder is also a big part of it as well. <laughs> what are the what are the real kind of concerns and anxieties that you see Ed Brubaker bringing to this story? What 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 is he using the the cosmic horror, the weird fiction elements to kind of comment on? I think one thing he's addressing is the history of comics actually in this piece, but because his specialty is noir, uh, he's he's looking at as I said before, turning some of these characteristics around, all the men that this femme fatale latches onto are damaged in some horrible way, sometime as a result of their interactions with her, but not all the time. They just need that female character to give them a sense of purpose and meaning in their life. And that is a big part of what Ed Brubaker is interrogating here is the purpose of femme fatales in genre fiction in general and what they're there for. And the way he brings in the weird element is basically saying that, look, this is just a, a curse and there's the levels of control that all these people are trying to enact over this woman, even trying to free her are done at a great cost, both to the woman and to the men who try to interfere in her life. And I think he's really looking at the gender dynamics of these comics while telling a really fantastic, hard-boiled detective story that takes place in the 50s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And without losing the edge that uh, 
a lot of noir and hard-boiled and weird fiction genre pieces often have it's it's a it's a balancing act and it's incredible i i've been aware of fatale but i have not actually had a chance to read it myself but this sounds this sounds like it is an updated version of hp lovecraft's story the the horror at red hook which is also this kind of noir hard-boiled private detective story about cults and old ones and and so on but uh, this is actually not one of Lovecraft's stories that's well-loved for a lot of reasons, but one of them is simply that Lovecraft himself maybe wasn't all that hard-boiled or really knew what that was about, but had heard of it and kind of wanted to try to write a story uh, like that. But Ed Brubaker's got some real good chops with this type of, of storytelling, having done Daredevil, having done Captain America. He knows how to tell a story about the kind of iconic hero up against forces that are are bigger than him. So I think this this sounds like a great place for people to start with cosmic horror comics yeah and i haven't actually gotten around to reading fatale myself either glenn but i think brandon pointing out that ed brubaker is just a master of kind of interrogating the art the uh comics as an arts form uh which he's done in his daredevil run and when he's done his captain america winter soldier stuff has been great but i've also really enjoyed um he has a couple kind of turns on the spy thriller uh velvet uh is one of his comics uh also under image um that i've read and enjoyed where it's essentially uh money penny has to deal with the fact that uh someone is having uh, causing problems for her spy agency and it's 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 a scenario in which you kind of flip the james bond roles on their head that it's the secretary actually is um the hardened agent who needs to deal with stuff not just the person who grabs your hat in the morning when you go see the uh go see m uh, similarly Un- incognito is another great book by ed brubaker in which he's uh, again kind of noir but kind of spy thriller um and so um ed brubaker's got some really great, great chops here and i'll definitely need to check out uh, fatal to see him taking a, a glance also at the lovecraftian weird fiction amongst other things well, let's move into talking about science horror as a subgenre now, and I'm going to exercise my prerogative as the person who has the outline in front of him and allow myself to to go first here. And I'm going to use this very early draft pick here to uh, to draft the entirety of the Marvel Universe. As we're recording this, I am fresh off having gotten up slightly before dawn to go see Endgame. Uh, but I was already thinking about the Marvel Universe in terms of being a, a superhero comics universe that has an awful lot of weird fiction elements in it. And a lot of this is because as opposed to DC... Marvel Comics grew up during the the Cold War, whereas the the big heroes of DC are all from a pre-Cold War world. And so in a lot of ways, the Marvel Universe airs a lot of the same anxieties that that our world has, this world of of superpowers and uh, uh, global superpowers, not in the sense of actual superhero superpowers, but also uh, things like nuclear weapons and global corporations and the the awesome power of science. And so that's where I'm going to bring this in as, as under the category of science horror. There are a number of ways where we see this. One of them is mad scientist villains. These abound throughout Marvel uh, Norman Osborn, the, the Green Goblin of Spider-Man, is a, a great example of this. I think you know about half of Spider-Man's villains are mad scientist-type villains. Uh, but then, of course, we have Ultron, who was really popularized in the, the second Avengers movie, uh, but who's actually been in the comics since uh, the early 1960s, I think, maybe the mid-1960s, made actually by the original Ant-Man, Hank Pym. But then we also have not just the villains, but superheroes many of the marvel superheroes are as we've joked about already they're people who have been fundamentally physiologically altered by science accidents again spider-man radioactive spider uh, the fantastic four going out into space you're exposed to cosmic stuff and suddenly you're uh, you know a rock monster but then also wolverine of course who is someone who's just manufactured in a in a lab he is himself essentially a science experiment 
We've also got the big theme of aliens messing with Earth. That might be a little more cosmic horror than science horror, but I kind of wanted to do this all in one breath. Here we've got things like the famous Kree Scroll War. Uh, this takes place in Avengers 89 to 97. This is something from the early 1970s. These are two rival aliens who are alien civilizations who are fighting each other, and Earth gets swept up in the middle of this. Much of this uh, is a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe now. Actually, most of it happening on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., I think. And wrapped up in this is the the Inhumans, who are humans who've been genetically engineered to be somehow slightly not human, hence the name Inhuman, to have superpowers. This is something that the Kree did as part of their uh, as part of their Cold War with the, the Skrull, in which Earth actually acted as a kind of third world country, uh, thus really kind of airing a lot of the anxieties that people in America might have about exactly what the Cold War was. Envisioning things that Americans were doing to third world countries is something that alien civilizations might do to us and the real horror of what that might look like. We also have the Kree, who have created the Inhumans, are ruled by an artificial intelligence that is called the Supreme Intelligence and is often treated as a kind of deity. And so here we have this weird fiction element as well of of people worshiping something as a god that we as an audience know is definitely not one and and the the creepiness that happens with that uh we've also got venom who i think is one really one of everyone's favorite marvel villains from the spider verse who is basically just symbiotic alien goo uh that is straight out of a lovecraft story right We've also got Galactus, who is another great Marvel villain, is the, the cosmic entity that consumes planets just as a, a form of sustenance. It's just in his nature to have to do that. This is the universe trying to kill us, but not because it wants to kill us, but it's because it wants to eat. It's indifferent to us as sentient creatures. I mean, that's as weird fiction as it gets, right? That is both cosmic horror and science horror. And so, uh, in short, just taking sort of a real broad view of Marvel comics, you know, it seems to me that the Marvel universe is really a comics universe that has science horror and also cosmic horror at its core, even if its mode of storytelling is often wonder rather than weird. I think the best example of this for me uh, within the Marvel universe is their ultimate run. And for me, the points you just made really come to a head during Brian Michael Bendis' run of Ultimate Fantastic Four. This is an explicitly weird fiction story he's telling. The first villain they encounter, I think, is the Mole Man, who's just this this weird guy who lives underground and has been changed by that in some way. And so looking at the theme of... of the French people, the forgotten people versus the Fantastic Four who have been changed th- through this cosmic energy. Though In this one, it's interdimensional energy. Uh, Brian Michael Bendis really came up with the idea that became the terrible movie that people call Fan4Stick sometimes. <laughs> uh, but his ideas are really well explored in the comics. and uh, the movie, it just, just doesn't understand what he's doing. But the Doctor Doom story that he begins uh, before Warren Ellis takes over is a weird fiction tale. It is a family legacy. It is ancient societies. It is uh, whether you're going to accept or reject your inheritance and all of these great things that is my favorite Doctor Doom origin story. Uh, I And, and it, he weaves all of these elements beautifully into a superhero story. And I just think that that you know, is a great example just off the top of my head of the elements of the Marvel universe that you're describing. Yeah. I think part of the fun that we've seen with uh, superheroes, Marvel and DC over the years, but particularly probably in the last like two or three decades is, I mean, I guess before that we had the what ifs and the, um, the Elseworlds imprint from DC and, and alternate universe stuff from Marvel. and But it's when creators have that moment to be like, no, no, let's look at the actual kind of horror of the situation that we have here. Some of it's actually done to great comic effect also. <laughs> no pun intended. Outside of comics, some of the best kind of Fantastic Four horror stuff is depicted to me in the Venture Brothers cartoon in how they've decided to skewer some of the uh, uh, assumptions you have about them and 
how that may play out. But uh, I think there's a lot of fun, but yet terrifying stories that come about. I, I'm recalling the Spider-Man arc in which Doc Ock actually takes over Peter Parker's body to become the superior Spider-Man and, and be that much better. But the sad part about that is that Peter Parker then is, is, is dead and just kind of the terror of, of that idea um, that you've lost and, and everyone around you doesn't not only doesn't realize that you're gone, but thinks that the person who's replaced you is that much better at being you than you ever were. Um, and that I think is a great bit of horror, um, kind of wrapped in kind of traditional, uh, tights and capes kind of garb. I think looking at what Marvel has done in terms of leaning on the weird fiction and cosmic horror tropes or science horror as well is, is a great it's it's a way to encounter the comics, but they're so, typically so full of optimism. I, I love your comparison, Brent, to the Venture Brothers, who are just the pessimistic, cynical, maybe nihilistic version of Johnny Quest, and it's that same kind of thing. They're <laughs> they're playing with the same elements, but exposing the roots of those elements rather than dressing them up in in tights and capes, so to speak. But I, I did want to bring up one sort of science horror book outside of the Marvel Universe, which is Revival, which was written by Tim Seeley and Mike Norton. And it ran from 2012 to 2017. Uh, it's a take on the zombie story. There are no real zombies in the book, though there are people who are corrupted by being brought back to life after they've died. And it's at once a small town noir that takes place in wisconsin in the bitter cold there's a science element the cdc is there investigating what's going on and quarantining the town and all the problems that uh, that creates there's all the small town drama of people who know each other too well and pretend not to to be polite and there's murder mysteries wrapped up in it as well what happens if you're murdered and you come back to life and you're trying to figure out who killed you it's a fantastic uh series it's one of my favorite you know horror comic series and i'm tossing it under science comic because the CDC is there. Well, I think that absolutely qualifies, though. As you as you say, Revival is doing a lot more than just being about the science, uh, the science horror of it. There are huge religious elements here, trying to understand what it would mean cosmologically for people to be coming back from the the dead. And it is also this kind of American Gothic story in the sense that it is looking at the kind of darkness that lies within a sort of small town Midwestern life. It's a marvelous comic book. We would be remiss if we don't at least mention here in this section the you know mega hit the global mega hit the walking dead but i would say i think revival's a better zombie quote-unquote zombie comic than the walking dead yeah i agree with you there i i really like what these guys have done with uh that story and like what these guys have done with zombies and uh made it really compelling uh, as you mentioned, Revival is kind of a great example also of gothic horror. Um, but one of my favorite gothic horror stories is, again, from Vertigo, and it's uh, the Preacher series about uh, Jesse Custard, who is possessed by this power of God, um, but then is taking this travelogue throughout um, the U.S. trying to find God, but then encountering a lot of uh, terrible people, including those who are related to him, which always seems to be a fun bit of American Gothic storytelling is always that the some of the more terrible people are also very close relatives at hand. And the vampire is sometimes good and sometimes not as good, but ends up being your best mate a good deal of the time. Uh, in addition to Preacher, then, you know, again, because I can't help but mention it, but Swamp Thing, to me, that is gothic horror. It helps that the same time I was reading from the public library uh, the volumes of San uh, Swamp Thing um, that Alan Moore wrote, I was watching a television show called American Gothic that was on at that time at the late 80s, early 90s. But, you know, here we have the bayou and everything's kind of dark and coming from the north, not from the south, just, you know, the accents and the patois and sometimes in, in effect just scream to me like this is it's, it's america but it's slightly different um and there's a lot more things that are 
boiled up and in terms of the history there and what's going on and also the darkness of uh, these swamp things with these um, palatial estates uh, juxtaposed with uh, people living in oftentimes poverty conditions. There's also this great comic that started only a few years ago, but has been delayed and is coming out more and more. It's it's a it's a big hit right now. It's called Black Hammer, which takes some of these American Gothic elements that we're talking about and turns them on their head. Instead, in in Black Hammer, it's about a bunch of superheroes from the Golden Age and Silver Age of comics, included har- including horror comics, who are exiled to basically live on a Clark Kent's farm, but in a <laughs> mundane universe. And there's a Shazam character who's a little girl. She's she's trapped in her little girl form, though she's like a 34-year-old woman. There's a swamp witch. There's the Black Hammer, which is a you know, a Black Thor type of character. There's the, the you know, the space traveling scientists who's being torn apart by quantum rays and kind of exists in multiple dimensions. There's a Martian character John Jones type of person. So this this series is taking all of the things we've been talking about and ter- putting it in this sort of mundane setting and telling the story about these characters trying to exist, either hiding their superpowers or forgetting they had them, and turning it into a, a family drama on a farm, basically. It's great stuff. Well, I think the, the, the element that we've all really globbed onto about gothicness about gothic horror is the sort of smaller scale but then also in particular the a, a mood that is related to a particular setting right a unique setting and i think for me if i'm going to think about comics and in, in those terms i'm going to be thinking about gotham i'm going to be thinking about batman right gotham i mean well it's got goth in the name right so that i think just kind of wins automatically but it's in the art it's often dark and rainy it is full of mansions and gargoyles and there's you know often caves or at least there's one cave under one important mansion anyway and there are bats everywhere just the the look of gotham uh has this real gothic feel to it but but the batman stories themselves also have a lot to do with weird fiction and a particular sort of gothic strand of weird fiction. I want to talk about one particular arc, one particular run of Batman, and that's uh, Scott Snyder's story, The Court of Owls. This is the the new 52 Batman uh, from 2011 after DC had sort of rebooted again and created this new 52 uh, universe for all of its characters. And Scott Snyder here imagines a a secret society called the Court of Owls, which has run Gotham for centuries, even though, you know, the the public doesn't know about this. And they've developed the ability to resurrect people using a a metal alloy called Electrum. This is something that, you know, only they have access to. It's sort of secret ancient knowledge. uh, And they're wrapped up with other types of of secret ancient knowledge. And uh, but it's got a real a real darkness and a real a real creepy vibe. But it's got lots of people in robes and masks and all of this is happening in in caves beneath this very gothic city and of course if we're thinking about batman there's no way we're gonna not also be thinking about his rogues gallery and batman's rogues gallery is really suffused with characters who are insane characters who are mad right and we've already on elder sign perhaps disproportionately so encountered insanity and madness as a kind of recurring motif in weird fiction obviously we've got the joker uh falls under this heading scarecrow falls under this heading and of course when these people are not out causing mayhem where they all live is in arkham asylum and this is named after Lovecraft's fictional New England town of Arkham. This is a, a self-conscious allusion to H.P. Lovecraft that uh, was developed by the great Batman writer, Denny O'Neill, which first appeared uh, in the, the early 70s as as well, right? So I think in all of these ways, Batman, even though it's kind of the biggest name in comics, is actually full of weird fiction and owes a lot of its storytelling motif and its mood to weird fiction which is actually growing up contemporaneously with comics with batman right and those elements you pointed out just to put a a fine point on it is uh kind of an aging aristocracy or aristocracy in ruins uh small family dramas and 
just the the loss of an old way and people trying to fill that in with something new and all of those parts of all of those elements exist in uh, the American Gothic stories in the South. It's caught up in post civil war after plantations begin to fail and, and the, the ruins of the South and what is left behind. And in the Northeast, you typically have new England Um, Gothic, the American Gothic is a little different in the Midwest, and we don't see as much of the setting there, but those elements still remain. The the failing farm, the small family drama, the small town, all of these things play a big role in what we're referring to as Gothic horror here. We'd be remiss here if we didn't bring up uh, Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez's horror comic Lock and Key, which is full of references to Lovecraft. The first issue is called Welcome to Lovecraft. There are mansions and powerful keys and ghosts and supernatural children and grisly murders and a family drama. All of this is here in this run. Your mileage may vary here, as mine does with Joe Hill and I'm going to say Stephen King alike. Sometimes uh, the stories and prose and characters really work for me. I think they have a lot in common as writers. Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. And you can see, you know, he kind of trained under his father in some ways, I think, in in some of the way he approaches his characters. Uh, I didn't love Lock and Key, but I know I'm going to sit down and read all of it one day. And I'd love to be convinced why in the forums. Right. Yeah. Lock and Key is kind of a strange story. I've I've read some of it as well and have quite enjoyed it. But it does read a lot like Stephen King writing a Spider-Man story, which actually sounds awesome now that I'm pitching it that way. So maybe I'll get back to lock and key as well. We were talking about Arkham and uh, there's all the inmates of the asylum. And occasionally the stories also turn to the fact that perhaps uh, Batman, the great detective himself, should also be in that asylum. And that kind of turns us to detective horror. And here again, um, going back to Swamp Thing, um, not Swamp Thing himself, but uh, as I mentioned earlier, John Constantine first appearing in Swamp Thing, but then having his own uh, run in Hellblazer and a television show um, as well that ran for a little while. But uh, John Constantine, uh, he's got the right swagger that I particularly like. Um, but uh, it's terrible, terrible, terrible to be uh, friends with or at all close to John Constantine. That almost never ends well for anyone. But uh, he's a very singular character, and the many creators who have taken a shot at writing and drawing him uh, have all done their own little spin on it. But uh, I've enjoyed all of them um, throughout the 80s and 90s and the ones I've read uh, since in the in the early aughts and need to get back and take a look again, although I think there's not currently a monthly Hellblazer running. Yeah, John Constantine as Hellblazer, as this occult detective, is really the heir of a long and extremely rich tradition of occult detectives that we've been and will continue to be exploring here on Elder Sign, uh, including Karnacki, the ghost finder in the stories of William Hope Hodgson, also the character John Silence from Algernon Blackwood, and, and, and many, many others. And what I love most, of course, about John Constantine, uh, what I love most about Hellblazer is that it feels really like an update. It, it's, it's the occult detective taken out of the kind of aristocratic drawing room, the kind of armchair detective, someone with the, the wealth and the, the, the means to be, uh, to be doing this as a kind of hobby, and actually puts occult detection out on on the streets and hellblazer in particular is is a is a book that shows us that all sorts of people can be affected by you know these horrific things by vampires and and demons and and plagues and and so on and and just occult magic and they need someone to help them out as well and that feels like a particular expression of a lot of anxieties that we were having in the 1980s and as i recall the very first volume of hellblazer as a standalone comic after it has spun off from swamp thing is a highly political comic book that Constantine is being extraordinarily critical of Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics, but especially of Margaret Thatcher in the UK. How John Constantine is taking place in the UK. He's British, mostly takes place in London. Uh, and it's wearing this on its sleeve, uh, you know, broadcasting this on the page in a, in a really big way, kind of bringing this element of weird fiction as social commentary really to the fore. 
I mean, another great kind of detective, and it's like a squad, is uh, the stories of Hellboy and his uh, fellow associates in the Bureau of Paranormal Research and Defense, the BPRD. That's a wonderful story series, and, and you can pick up any particular arc and read it, and it's kind of this great story about investigating these uh, interruptions of otherworldly weird things that are trying to enter or disrupt or even destroy our world. And sometimes, you know, you've got Nazis who are trying to help that along, but sometimes you also just have things from another world that are interfacing for their own ill. Some of these things are understandable, like your normal kind of demons or devils from hell, but sometimes they're more kind of Lovecraftian, unknowable things that are outside this time and space. And then you've got our kind of plucky group of heroes, and uh, particularly the attitude that Hellboy brings to bear, uh, which is depicted fairly well in film, too, of just kind of, despite being a big red guy with a big red fist, he, he also just kind of doesn't really have time for this nonsense and just wants to smoke a cigar <laughs> yeah he speaks for all of us i think right, right. Yeah. well i think that about wraps up what we wanted to talk about in terms of different subgenres of weird fiction but one of the things that's great about weird fiction is that so much of it is out of copyright and so people are able to do comic adaptations of people like lovecraft and poe and uh many of others of the of the smaller names of uh, of the stable of great weird fiction writers of sort of before the second world war and so we wanted to talk uh just very briefly about favorite adaptations of prose weird fiction and and brand i think you've brought one to the conversation tonight this was kind of hard for me because while I love comic books, um, sometimes it's really hard for me if I've read something in prose first, then to see particularly weird fiction, to see it adapted, to, to give it a face. Cthulhu is scarier to me when I read Call of Cthulhu than I, if I see any actual physical representation of it. Um, and so that's kind of a challenge I've had. But uh, there's one recent exception to that, which is um, there was an adaptation of a Neil Gaiman short story, Troll Bridge, which is always kind of one of my favorite short stories, which is taking the fairy tale of the troll and putting it in a more modern context, but making it really terrifying and quite evocative um, of kind of the fears we all have as we get older. Um, but there was an adaptation done in which uh, there's beautiful art by Colleen Doran. And as I look through, um, the art either struck me as, well, that's actually what I had in my mind's eye, or it, it at least presented me something where I'm like, well, that's not quite how I envisioned it, but that doesn't fall short of kind of what I would want to see. So I just, Colleen Doran's um, adaptation, which it's really Neil Gaiman, again, is listed as the author, but uh, Colleen Doran is the artist who gave us the visuals to go with Troll Bridge by Neil Gaiman. It's very magical realism, but um, I'm always left with kind of a, a existential terror every time I either read it in prose, read it in the comic form, or listen to the audiobook version of it. Yeah, that's really high praise for an adaptation because you've picked what is actually a pretty tremendous short story. I have picked a short story that I don't actually like all that much. And so for me, the comic adaptation adds a lot to it. And and this is an adaptation of Lovecraft's story, The, the Festival. Uh, this is found in the Lovecraft Anthology Volume 2, which is edited by Dan Lockwood. It's uh, adapted, the, the story anyway, is adapted by Simon Spurrier. The art is by Matt Timpson. Uh, the, the Festival is HBL's Christmas story about mysterious quote-unquote people engaging in a, a secret and ancient midwinter festival and here i think like you're talking about brent it's really the art that matters here for me and uh timson's art really brings this to life and especially what he does i think is, is actually capture the gothic element of this story that's actually not foregrounded by lovecraft himself but timson does a great job of capturing the the wintry city life in this new england small town in ways that i think surpass what lovecraft himself is actually able to do with prose and, and you know we can think about that in terms of what you said brent in that you don't actually really want to see cthulhu drawn because lovecraft's prose is scarier than anything that we could actually see and that's a sentiment i heartily agree with but in this story i think lovecraft could have done more with the setting than he did and that's actually really what i appreciate about this adaptation 
as I said at the beginning of this episode, I've read I've read many fewer comics, I think, <laughs> compared to compared to Glenn and, and Brent here. So I don't think I've ever read a comic adaptation of anything I've read in prose before. I'll have to keep my eye out for those sorts of things. I'm much more of a uh, film or TV adaptation uh, seeker outer than one in comics. But I'm really glad you guys brought those recommendations to our attention. I'm going to be seeking those out. On that note, though, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what your favorite weird fiction comics are. We've really only scratched the tip of this proverbial iceberg here. We'd love recommendations ourselves. And we'd also love for you to commission us to discuss one of your favorite topics. As we said in the beginning, it can be a TV show, a book, a short story, uh, something that we can cover in about an hour or so. We love doing these episodes. It gives us a break from our normal routine, and it always opens doors into really great avenues of conversation. Also, please make sure you're checking out Hanging Out with the Dream King for more comics talk. It's fantastic. I've been reading along. It's been a lot of fun. And next time, we will be back with whatever's going to be next. I'll have to re-record this section when we know what is next after we've done that Patreon poll. Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) Until then, we greet you and say farewell.